BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. We've talked so much on this show about the truth of the foundational worldview and how we understand the truth of the reality to which we're presented and why the biblical understanding of truth always has to inform how we look at everything. You've often heard in politics, especially from President Trump, who said the fake news media is all about their narrative. We know that there is a story that's crafted often by the mainstream media to display a particular point of view. Culture does that, politics uh, does that, and in so many other areas. But what about entertainment? Well, entertainment is also selling you a story that informs us on a worldview perspective. Have you actually stopped and analyzed the shows that you're watching, the documentaries, all of the other entertainment, even music? That is coming from a worldview perspective. Is that in alignment with truth? Well, the perfect person to talk about this is none other than Superman himself, my good friend, Dean Cain. Dean, you are an interstellar superstar, and you are an actor, a filmmaker, and most importantly, a dad. Thanks so much for joining me here on Just the Truth. I'm honored to be here, Jenna. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And so you've had a wonderful career. I know that all of my girlfriends are so jealous that I'm talking to Superman himself. We're all fans of uh, the adventures of Lois and Clark. And so, you know, you have had such a great career in the entertainment world. Uh, But talk to us about the truth of how storytelling becomes that kind of narrative and what we need to look out for, uh, for stories that really aren't in alignment with truth. Well, you know, Hollywood is the land of make-believe. If you go back in the history of Hollywood, you look at sort of the Frank Capra movies and things like that, Uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or It's a Wonderful Life, movies that are my favorites, that I love to death, they were selling a different view of America and of about uh, an Americana than than you see today. Um, Frankly, I prefer that view. And um, everything that you see, everything is presented with a point of view. And that's true in news, it's true in politics, and it's certainly true in entertainment. Um, You know, a story is a story. So if you wanna affect a narrative, if you wanna affect, you tell the story of one person, and that story in itself can affect the way people think about an issue or about a subject, and you can push that view um, on your audience. It happens all the time in Hollywood. Um, Is it the truth? Hollywood is not the truth. Um, seldom do you get the truth uh, about anything uh, in Hollywood, but you know you it, it can. I mean, we, we do movies. You know, I make a lot of faith-based movies because I think it's important to tell those stories. Hollywood doesn't make those those movies. I do a movie like God's Not Dead, um, and I play the only non-redeemable character in the or non-redeemed character in the whole show. I think, um, but it's a really effective film that helped a lot of people. Lois and Clark. 
for example, helped a lot of people back in the day get through high school and things like that. I hear the, I didn't hear it when I was doing the show, but I've met with people afterward and they're like, you know, it's great. I love the way that he is the most powerful being and he chooses to do the right thing because he was raised with small town American values. And I think that's wonderful and great. He could have obviously gone the exact opposite way and been the worst tyrant on the face of this planet. But of course, everything you see in Hollywood does come out with a point of view. And there are only a few people in Hollywood who really make the decisions about what gets made and what goes out there. You see things like uh, Top Gun, which is a film I loved. The new Top Gun comes out and, you know, uh, Maverick's jacket has to change. There can't be that Chinese thing on there or the Japanese symbol on there. They've got to change it because of the backers. That stuff happens all the time. Hmm. And, you know, uh, D.C. is often called ugly Hollywood, which I think there's a, a lot of truth to that, right? Um, because you see that same thing that you just said about how there's only a few different decision makers uh, in Hollywood. That's the same thing in D.C. where you see that there's this undercurrent of these elites and these people who are pushing a narrative onto the culture. And there's only a couple of different viewpoints that they say this is permissible to do. So what's what's really the alternative? Why, why does uh, Hollywood just have that one particular viewpoint and they want to do all the things like the cancel culture, like saying, like Disney saying, you know, that Gina um, Caruso can't now play a character because of something that was fact-based that she put out on her Twitter. I mean, what what's the alternative for people who are looking for content like you're talking about? Well, fortunately for Gina Carano, in that particular instance, uh, the Daily Wire stepped up and she's doing a film with them right away, right behind that. And it made a big deal. It might have actually done the exact opposite for what Disney wanted to do. And Disney shouldn't be yelling because they're not the woke police. They're doing business, um, you know, in areas, shooting things, you know, right out not where, you know, a million Uyghurs are in, in, in concentration camp sort of situations right around the corner. I mean, so the people who are who are saying, oh, look at us, we're so um, noble and and wise and wonderful are, are seldom that way. Um, the, what, what's interesting now is there are so many different platforms to get things out, whether it's a podcast, whether it's, you know, on Twitter or it's through social media, or if it's uh, different channels or streaming services and things like that. All these different things coming up now allows for more viewpoints to get out there. So there won't be sort of this monopoly on the truth. And I think that people are sophisticated enough to realize they're being sold a bill of goods and they're sophisticated enough to go, hopefully they're sophisticated enough to go, Hmm, I see what they're doing here. I see what they're trying to push. I like this story, but I see what they're doing. Like I love the movie avatar, mm. loved avatar. But if you look at the message behind it, evil human beings going to kill these, you know, indigenous people for this, whatever that metal or what was called, you know, they're just the evil corporations. I never and saw it. I only real... rode the Disney ride. <laughs> But yeah, Avatar is a great movie. But, okay, but I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. But the narrative is this awful mining company is going to come exploit people for the, the minerals of this planet and kill everybody and everything. And they just don't care. And of course, there's some people who disagree with that. But I think that people are sophisticated enough to sort of see the truth in the messages mm -hmm. they're getting from Hollywood and in the messages they're getting from politics, hopefully. Um, although a lot of people do sort of go along like lemmings. Yeah. And that sort of alternative, uh, Dean, is, I think, really the, the crux of where we're at in culture right now with all of the cancel culture, with all of the big tech that's trying to silence everyone. And so when we come back, I'm talking with Superman himself, Dean Kane, about entertainment's point of view and the differences of what messages Hollywood's putting out that really actually mirror the same thing that mainstream media is doing. So we'll be right back with more here on Just the Truth. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. 
With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Continuing the conversation about the truth or maybe lack of truth in media with my good friend Dean Kane, who of course is an interstellar superstar, an actor, a filmmaker, and was Superman himself, is still Superman, have to say that. So Dean, uh, we're talking about the narrative that entertainment sells. And uh, the la at the end of the last segment, we were talking about this whole uh, big tech industry and how they're trying to put uh, just their narrative out there and trying to silence people with uh, this whole cancel culture type of idea and, and deplatforming people. Uh, what is, in your view, um, the way that Hollywood is actually either attributing to that or is it helping? I don't think Hollywood's helping at all. Um, in, in the positive, I think, I think they're contributing to that problem when they're telling, you know, people like Gina Carano, fire her because she said this or said something I didn't like. When, when there's other people on the same show who have said things much more... Um, offensive in my in my view than than what Gina tweeted out by a long shot. Um, I believe everybody has the right to say these things. I believe nobody should be deplatformed. And when Twitter deplatforms the sitting president of the United States, that's a frightening, frightening thing. So um, I, I think these social media companies really do want just one one perspective out there. I think it's terrifying. And I think um, it becomes George Orwell, it becomes Newspeak, it becomes, you know, up is down, right is wrong, um, bad is good. And it's it's just frightening to see it happen, like, in, my re in real time in my life. Uh, it, it's terrifying. So I hope we come up with a way to deal with that, um, because I don't think, pe you know, I believe in the First Amendment. I believe in protecting people's speech, even if I don't agree with what they have to say, especially if I don't agree with what they have to say. You have the right to make your opinion heard spout your opinion just you know you don't no call to action to threaten or hurt somebody or anything of that nature but i really believe in that first amendment right and they don't want you to have that out here i mean i was on the show supergirl and obviously i played superman and i was on supergirl the show and um i tweeted something somebody didn't like and the first thing were you know dean kane is canceled get him off the show writing to the shows people going how can you have somebody on an actor you know on your show who espouses this belief or that belief that's craziness. That is madness. And so by doing that, you're not, they think, I think people believe you're going to be able to censor people's opinions. It doesn't work. It never works throughout history. I'm a history major. It will not work. Um, the only way you start censoring people for real, you, you send them to re-education camps, you genocide, you kill them. It just, it's, it's not going, it's not going down here in the United States. Um, I believe we're almost at a tipping point where it's going to flip back the other way, whether that's because President Trump comes up with his own new version of a platform or because or if enough people wake up and realize that they're being silenced. And if and th this cancel culture, it, it eats everyone. So the people who feel so emboldened and empowered by yelling cancel so and so above, even President Obama said something about it. It's that you're, you're not you're not cool because you're trying to cancel so and so so and so you're really cool if you listen to their opinion, have a cogent argument discuss it with them, agree to disagree, or maybe one of the other arguments are, are better and you can win the other person over. That's what should be taking place, not less dialogue, more dialogue. 
Absolutely. And talking about uh, the First Amendment and having this culture where we want the truth to prevail and having the free marketplace of ideas, it's the same thing in philosophy as it is with capitalism. The best product, the best idea should at the end of the day prevail. And we should have this ability to have this free exchange and to be able to talk to each other without worrying about government coming in and saying, oh, only this viewpoint's acceptable, only that viewpoint's acceptable. And so what's interesting with cancel culture is that when you get these private companies involved when they're not governed by the First Amendment and you have people in Hollywood, for example, that will kind of uh, really coerce you like they tried to do with Gina uh, to say, well, if you put out your viewpoints that we disagree with on your Twitter or on you know, your personal platforms, we are going to then remove your livelihood. We are going to then fire you from certain things. That's really the risk of where we're going down is these sort of tech and big company oligarchs. And so um, you are a filmmaker yourself, you have alternative media. Um, is that something that people should invest in more than maybe the traditional Hollywood? I mean, do you, and let's talk about boycotts for a minute. I mean, that's something that I haven't really participated in, but a lot of people think that that's the solution to say, well, let's just boycott Hollywood. Let's try some of these other alternative ways of only getting our entertainment from these sources. Well, I think, you know, boycott is one way to, 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 to discuss it. Another way is capitalism, free choice. If you, if I'm watching a channel like CNN and I can't watch for more than three minutes without getting angry or wanting to yell at the the, the presenter, the host, the the opinion person, because I don't really consider many of them at CNN straight news people. No, they're activists. Uh, they're not journalists. Yeah, they're activists for sure. And I can't watch that, and that's yep. a problem. So I won't watch it. I used to have CNN on. That would be the place I would go. You know, this is. I'm old, so it was decades ago, but still, um, I would go back and I would do that. I remember watching the first Gulf War and watching Bernard Shaw and those guys in the in Baghdad. I'm mean, like, that was uh, that was CNN, man. I was like, all right, great, and they were giving the news, and and um, you know, then Baghdad Bob was out there saying that Americans are committing suicide at the gates. That's the stuff we're getting now. We're getting misinformation and opinion, and it's crazy. Um, so, but I think people have the free choice. You know, that's why the CNN ratings dropped down the tubes, um, and that's why you know the Fox numbers went up. And so things change. Um, and I think that that consumers will make those decisions. Um, I think a lot of people are going to go watch Gina Carano's new movie at the Daily Wire. I think that, um, you know, that I, I never watched The Mandalorian. I won't watch The Mandalorian now uh, up, up until after, you know, I'll watch up to where Gina got fired. And then I I don't think I want to see it anymore. But if I like something and I like what they're doing, I'll watch it. And I think that goes back to capitalism. And I think the good product will prevail and people will just go, enough of this, enough of that. I'll try this. I'll try President Trump's platform instead of this platform or I'll, you know, leave Twitter. Twitter is toxic. I mean, Twitter is, woo. Yeah. Twitter is toxic. <laughs> um, and uh, it's one thing to learn how to navigate Twitter and to be someone like me who, who tends to be, um, I, listen, I'm not argumentative. I just have an opinion. I have an mm -hmm. educated opinion and I don't have a problem stating it. I'm not afraid. If I were a new actor, if I were young and in this business, I would keep my mouth shut hmm. because it can ruin careers in a heartbeat. I got to a point where I'm old enough and I've established enough that I just couldn't keep my mouth shut and watch this cascade of negativity um, and what I believe to be untruths pouring out of Hollywood and nobody pushing back. So I finally had mm. to start 
just piping up a little bit here. And, and it's great that you are, um, but you raise an interesting point, Dean, that you as an established actor, as someone who's already well-known, who brings a gravitas to the projects that you have, um, you're not just new in this business, but what is it saying to the young actors who are saying, I don't want to have a political opinion, I have to have this sort of separation so that I don't get fired? That's really a quelling effect on speech. It's terrible. It's terrible that exists all throughout. I mean, look at every single kid who's in going into college and so on and so forth. I mean, I had to have the conversation with my son. Very careful about social media. Very careful about anything you say. There was the thing that happened on The Bachelor where some girl went to an antebellum party way back in the day. I haven't seen anything about it particularly, but who knows what the kid did or what happened there. But that got, you know, Chris Harrison ended up getting fired up for that and she got something else happened. I mean, I don't, that sort of stuff, you know, um, I'm glad that my entire life wasn't played out on social media mm -hmm. as a child. I made a lot of mistakes through high school and college and so on and so forth. Um, now it does a huge, it has a huge quelling effect and there's something to be terrified about for all these young people. My, we've got two God kids. They're nine, three, uh, two God kids and a God and a niece and they're all 10 years old. And the conversations I have to have with them is, is about being careful that you don't get burn your whole life by saying something stupid on social media because people that cancel culture is it is a terribly quelling effect it's terrifying everybody and puts you in lockstep you got to say the right thing as a young actor coming into hollywood if you said something like i'm i support the the second amendment oh my gosh you forget it you're in big trouble even though every other film in hollywood is made in features firearms and everything in them, um, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, you say something like that and you're, you're, you're in big trouble. You're a, hmm. you're a, you're a, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm Asian. My given name is Tanaka. You know how many times I've been called a white supremacist? That's it's crazy. Madness. That's it's madness. And, and it shows the hypocrisy, like you were just talking about, where there's guns all over the place in all Hollywood movies. I mean, there are, now we're canceling, though, old movies in the antebellum era, like Gone with the Wind, that, you know, is a story in the Civil War when they wore the big hoop skirts. And I mean, I love those dresses. I'm not going to lie. I love <laughs> those dresses. Uh, wish that we could wear those today. But, you know, but, there, but there's such a hypocrisy in Hollywood by saying, you know, you can't support the constitutionally protected rights, but yet we're going to go and we're going to have um, a completely ahistorical rendering of an all uh, African-American cast on on Hamilton on Broadway, which is clearly not historically accurate. But yet, if they did it in reverse, that would be something that would be absolutely terrible that, you know, white people can't play black people now. So this type of hypocrisy, I mean, what's really the, the point behind this, do you think? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, a film, so as a, as a guy who studied history, a film like... Uh, um, like Gone with the Wind is so important for so many reasons. If it's just to look at the way characters were portrayed back then, you know, the fact that, uh, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn that, oh my gosh, how controversial that was. You have to understand these things in context and in time. And yes. by by whitewashing everything, you're you're losing that perspective. And I think that's really doing a disservice to our youth and, and people who really want to study it and understand it. I think that's wrong in every way, shape, and form. One of my favorite movies that could never, ever get made today, Blazing Saddles. Uh. Brilliant. So wrong and so non-PC in so many ways, but fantastic for it. And that's the kind of stuff that needs to get made. Satire, I, I, I think I tweeted this the other day, satire is a tremendous tool and it should be used. And it was used, it was, it should be used against everyone, including myself. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. When it gets mean, it's something different. But if it's satire, satire is a great, 
it's a great vehicle. And and with with today's technology, people can do it on, uh, you know, on on these little apps or Vine or on mm-hmm. Instagram or whatever these things are. You just t- to put take put out there on a on your own website and you've got a whole parody group of whatever you want it to be. And I think that's great. Oh uh, yeah. Unfortunately, people are going to try to shut those down though. Yeah. Like they're doing with the Babylon Bee. That happens to be my favorite outlet for satire. And I had uh, Seth Dillon, who's the CEO of Babylon Bee on my podcast. So everybody listen to that. It's called the truth about satire. We had a really interesting conversation about the importance of telling the truth through just being funny and through satirizing all of these public figures and telling the truth in a way that's a little bit quirky and funny. Uh, but we're talking about the truth behind entertainment and the entertainment narrative. We'll be right back with more here on Just the Truth. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Continuing the conversation now here on Just the Truth with my friend Dean Kane, who is Superman and, of course, the actor and filmmaker. And, uh, Dean, we're talking, of, of course, about the truth behind entertainment and how uh, the, the Hollywood esque style, you know, and all of the Hollywood bigwigs have their truth and their perspective that they want to push forward in these narratives. So um, in the last segment that we have here, I want to ask you to kind of pull back that curtain. And for people who aren't part of Hollywood, um, help us understand um, what goes into filmmaking, how these stories start, and uh, why it's so important to have a truth-based story instead of, and even good morals, uh, especially even if it's a fantasy story, some of those things instead instead of what the mainstream media is trying to sell to our kids in particular. Ooh, well, that's the toughest one because the kids, yes. uh, there's your, you know, the, the message they can get across to kids about X, Y, or Z and, uh, and they do why they push these certain narratives. I, I, I don't know whether it's personal or if it's, I, I honestly can't answer that question because the stories I like to tell, and I'll tell a, a range of different stories. I'll do a movie like Vendetta where I'm a bad guy doing awful things and shooting and fighting and killing people and awful. It's done with a little, a little, you know, tongue in cheek to it, but um, we have to cancel you. Film. You played a bad person. We have to cancel you now. So yeah, <laughs> this is this is the end. Cut the segment. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> I've, played a, I've never played a Japanese person though, which is really odd. Huh. Uh, being an a- of Asian descent. I once played a Hawaiian, but I wasn't from Hawaii, you know, in mm. real life. So and that's what's, it's getting down to that these days where yeah. you can't yeah. play anything. I mean, I thought Robert Downey Jr. Um, it, playing the Australian, playing the black guy in in um, Tropic Thunder was one of the most brilliant things ever. It was because it was making fun of exactly that. But I don't think you could make tro- Tropic Thunder today. And that was the, that was just about five minutes ago. And that's craziness. So I think people are. You know, they're trying to jump on this woke bandwagon and they're trying to just make things to to appease to people, but it's not going to work. That never does work. What works is somebody being edgy, being South Park and going out there and poking fun at everybody and, and getting that out there. I think that's I think that's much more effective. But there are people who who have uh, who again, there are those decision makers here in Hollywood who decide, you know, this is what we're going to have on. You know, and we're going it, to it's all going to be about diversity now. So I want to have a person of color in every lead role or this or that. And that kind of stuff never works. It has to happen organically. It has to happen naturally. I understand the, the desire to have more people represented. I get it. But for someone to go and play um, a character who's LBGTQ and not be gay, 
I've done it. I, I think I have every right to do so as an act. It's called acting. And right. you're not going to get, I have friends who, uh, who have been injured in, in war and such, and they can certainly play a guy with no legs because they don't have legs. But, you know, so can Gary Sinise through the magic of uh, filmmaking, be a guy with and, and tell the story. So it's just, it kind of drives me nuts that you have to be this one thing in order to be that. And I don't think it's going to work. I think they're going to lose this battle in the long run, and they should. Mm -hmm. and, and you raise a really critical point that I think is so obvious and common sense is that it's acting. Like, that you're supposed to be able to be someone that you're not. Because if we took that out to its logical conclusion, then no one could play historical characters. No one could play anything because you are only the person that you are. You are not, in fact, someone else. So why should you even, just because you happen to have certain characteristics that are similar, why should you be able to take on their persona? So that kind of uh, non-common sense doesn't even make sense. It's just this idea that we have to cater to this representative diversity and we have to be this woke culture. And that gets into something that um, the actress Scarlett Johansson, which apparently we have to call women actors now because you know we have to have everything genderless but she's an actress she's a woman uh, but she said she's something the other day that um that she just said you know what actors should not comment in politics at all that's just you know and that kind of goes back to what you were saying of the young people who are just getting into hollywood not even commenting but um but do you think that that sort of split is something where she's right on that or for a lot of people, are they still kind of looking to Hollywood to say, well, you're supposed to have stories that have a moral premise. You have a worldview implicit in them. We want your opinion as the actor. Well, I'll say first off, uh, and this is a warning to everybody out there, don't go to Hollywood for your morals. <laughs> Do yes. not go to Hollywood <laughs> for your morals. Because this is the most immoral group of people that you'll find any place on earth. And they have no moral standing to tell you what you should be doing or how you should be doing it. That being said, you know, um, uh, actors are actors. They should be able to play any role they want to. Now, if you want to talk, the truth is, and my dad had this, my dad's a director and I grew up uh, around film and all my friends that I grew up with became very famous actors. You know, Sean Penn, Chris Penn, Rob Lowe, Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez, Holly Robinson, this whole group of kids, we all grew up together. And I watched a lot of them go out there and make a lot of mistakes, say a lot of dumb things, do a lot of dumb things, get in trouble for these things. Um, then I also watched them be, you know, world sexiest man. And I'm like, how did Charlie become the world sexier? Rob become this? I don't know who got it or what. I'm like, what? You know, he got pushed in the pool in high in junior high school. Uh, stuff like that, you go, okay. But, um, so that stuff is just, it's just madness. But but my dad told me something early on about about press and doing things. And it actually has, I think it's actually pretty wise, um, I've got to give my dad props here, is to say as little as you can as an actor. Like if I were, if I were to advise an actor on how to stay out of all this rubble and out of this stuff, it's just to shut up, honest to goodness. Don't say anything about your life, your real life, your thoughts, your anything, because you're an actor. So when people see me now on screen, maybe they think of Superman or maybe they think of something I've said politically or something like that. I'd rather have them as an actor just see that character. Hmm. So I, I get why it would be valuable to say very little about your own life. And, 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 if you, and if you're made of that ilk, you can do that. I'm not made of that ilk. I can't keep my mouth shut. I have an opinion and, um, you know, I, I have to voice it. Um, but I don't think that's the right step for everybody. And certainly some of the actors that I know are just not, if they were to voice their real opinions, people would be like, well, that person is a blithering idiot. And uh, <laughs> so it's better that they keep their mouth shut.
Mm -hmm. Well, and everyone should follow you uh, definitely on social media. I do. And I love the fact that you're pretty snarky on Twitter. I retweet <laughs> you all the time. And I love that part of it because you're not afraid to tell the truth. And um, and certainly, you know, there are different ways for different people to actually stand up and, um, and to be bold and have the courage to say things versus maybe taking a more calculated approach. Absolutely. So in your um, in your life, though, Dean, and as you move forward with some of these projects, um, what are some of the projects that you're working on and why are these stories important to you? Well, you know, as a young person getting into this business, I would take any job I could get. I just got really fortunate that I got to play a character like Superman for four years. And then various different things happened and I had all sorts of different shows. And I, my company decided to go ahead and make a show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. We did that for four years. It was great. I had a son. Um, and then I actually was, for me, I had to make a decision. Um, I had a chance to become one of the highest paid actors in television. I would have to go up to Vancouver and shoot a show up there. Um, it ended up going on for five years, six years. And uh, I was fighting for custody of my son or fighting for joint custody of my son at the time. And I I was told by my attorneys that I wouldn't be able to, I would have to fight a move away case. And they didn't know that I would win that case. So if I wanted to go take this job, um, by by being a father and I'm adopted. My, my dad adopted me. So I, I know where I'd be without him and that would be nowhere. So I was, there's just no possible way I was going to, to, uh, leave my son. And so, um, I ended up with full custody of him at the age of nine, uh, 12 legally. Um, but, uh, it was the greatest decision I ever made in my life. Uh, that cause he's my favorite human being. You and I talked, you know, once before very briefly about kids and it's the greatest thing being a father is the greatest thing in my life. And so to be able to be his father and still have this career, which has morphed um, into me doing things that I like to do. Like I just, I've done two documentaries recently. One of them just received an Emmy. It was wonderful. The first one was called Architects of Denial. It dealt with the Armenian genocide and the, the denial of that uh, recognition of that genocide um, via Turkey. And even by the United States, hasn't he still hasn't recognized it. The Senate and the House has. And I lobbied both the Senate and the House for that. I was going to lobby uh, President Trump real hard uh, in his second term unfortunately he didn't get that second term it's coming uh, it's coming yes. 2024 yes we'll, we'll uh, both be I'll, there cheering him on <laughs> yes and i'll also be asking him to recognize officially the armenian genocide um because there's political reasons behind that and so but going through that as a history major being able to make something like that that effect, i got I, I received the order of armenia from the president serge sarxian at the time um it was great to do something and uh, so many armenian friends that i have will come up to me or people i don't know and just go hey thank you for what you've done you know, shining a light on that situation with Armenia. And then I did another one called Hate Among Us. We just won an Emmy for that. Our director won an Emmy for that, which was great. I exec produced it. And that tells the story of the rise in in, uh, um, in anti-Semitism throughout Europe, uh, here in the United States, et cetera. So it's great. And, and it's a direct link from um, Architects of Denial because Hitler said when he was getting ready for his final solution, he said, after all, who remembers the Armenians or what happened to the Armenians? And that's a very prescient point. And that leads us into sort of hate and this whole how hate is taught and what breeds hate, et cetera, et cetera. So we may do a whole series on that. So that's a wonderful thing where I get to do something of substance and hopefully affect change and affect the way people look at um, genocide and hate in general. Um, so I think that's a very important thing to be able to do. I love doing that. I'm, I wrote, I'm producing, directing, starring in my first feature uh, later this year, which I'm really excited about. And uh, I'm as busy as I could possibly be hosting season, my season seven of Masters of Illusion on the CW and just hosted the Faith, uh, the Family Film Awards, which was a lot of fun. Um, that's going to air April 22nd, I believe. And Margaret got uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And my dad has had a burning 
crush on Anne Margaret for <laughs> decades. So I sent him a picture of me with Anne Margaret, and he was like, uh, I can tell totally he just jealous. didn't know what to say. His nostrils <laughs> kind of like flare out, and that's when I got him. He was just like, mm-hmm. You got me there. Nice, nice. Well, and Dean, I love that you have the story and the legacy that you chose family first. And this is why in America, making sure that we have the freedom to make those decisions and to say that we can put family first. I know that you're hurt, um, as, as you've told me so often, that the greatest thing in your life is to be a dad. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and telling um, all of the people who are watching about kind of an insider's perspective in Hollywood and why it matters to tell the truth in these stories and some of the great projects uh, that you're working on. So people can find you, of course, on social media uh, anywhere else. Uh, yeah, social media, I guess I guess that's it. You know, I, got, I did away with the publicist thing a long time ago. Thank God. Uh, I'm spending my money on that for. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, because you're Superman. You don't need anything else other than, you know, your social media handle. And, of course, people can find you here on Just the Truth. But Dean, thanks yes. so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime soon. We'll be right back with more on Just the Truth. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Just the Truth. And now we'll have to get a little more serious talking, of course, about the Constitution, at least in some segment. Uh, we had to let Superman go fly away. But uh, we are now joined by Jared Ede. He is the chief legal officer of Project Veritas to talk about an important case that uh, is out of New York that you are actually suing the New York Times for defamation. So uh, talk to me about Project Veritas and what led to this lawsuit. Of course. So Project Veritas released a story back in September of, of uh, 29, excuse me, 2020, where we were talking about a Minnesota ballot harvesting issue. We had actually obtained video of a guy in his car with hundreds of ballots on top of his dash, where he absolutely said, my car's full, fiddy, fiddy, my car is full. And the New York Times reported, well, this video is deceptive. It doesn't show any evidence. It relies solely on unnamed uh, witnesses, which, of course, is demonstrably false. Uh, we asked the New York Times to correct this. The New York Times refused to correct it, so we sued. Hmm. And, of course, we had a great victory this last week. Um, the New York Times, as they typically do with these types of cases, they went to the court and they effectively said, well, listen, you know, here's all of our, our various reasons as to why we should get out, ask the court for dismissal, and the court in this case just didn't buy any of them. It was truly a phenomenal and, and stunning victory. It really is. And for people who understand the landscape here and for everyone who has been paying attention at all to uh, everything that has gone on in the fake news uh, media and with these types of lawsuits where uh, President Trump, I mean, I was part of uh, some of these lawsuits where we sued the New York Times as part of uh, the, the Trump campaign, um, other media outlets for saying provably false statements. But um, as you just said, Jared, uh, the most typical response 
uh, at the very preliminary level is to say, well, this is really couched in an opinion and we're allowed to publish basically whatever we want because you can't show the standard of actual malice when it's a, a public figure or when it's um, a public official. And so there's the case on uh, New York Times versus Sullivan that's the seminal case, which we all agree, of course, that protections for journalists, freedom of the press, of course, that's a constitutionally protected right. But that doesn't cover the right to publish false statements, nor should it. So that rule in New York Times versus Sullivan, um, I think that the Supreme Court needs to take a different look at this and maybe tighten some of these uh, restrictions and at least say that you have the opportunity to go in front of a judge or jury and actually show evidence as to why this is a false and defamatory statement. And that's what the judge in your case actually said. You get this opportunity. So um, talk to me about that. Really, I, I think it's a historic victory in your case. And it really is. There are only a few handful of cases where the New York Times has actually lost a motion to dismiss without appeal um, on, on such a case as this. It's it's crazy how few times people are able to do this. And I think part of the reason is exactly what you were talking about, that New York Times versus Sullivan Supreme Court case from 1965 that established that malice standard. It effectively forces people like us, for example, who are lied about to go inside the minds of the reporters and try to figure out what were they thinking at the time they wrote that article. And we have to do that without the benefit of being able to ask them, what were you thinking? The right. judge in this case finally said, okay, you get to finally ask that question. What were you thinking? The New York Times here did, you're right, uh, uh, Jenna, also try to get out of the case by saying, well, geez, this is just an unverifiable expression of opinion. When we say these videos are deceptive, it's just opinion. And the judge was having none of it. The judge actually called the New York Times deceptive and disinformation, Called uh, said those those terms certainly apply to them when they insert and interject their own opinion into the news without disclosing it to their readers. The judge noting, when you read the news section of the New York Times, shocker, you're expecting to read the news, not opinion. Right, it was, and again, just Right, and they're having to make that uh, that clear differentiation, and they should, uh, between fact versus opinion. And you're right that when the average reasonable person picks up the paper and they're reading something that presents itself as a news article, and when it is a statement of fact rather than a statement of opinion, context matters, but you can't, as a publisher, get around the idea that well, this is uh, just this is just opinion when it's clearly and demonstrably on face a statement of fact. I mean, if I go outside and I say the weather is 68 degrees right now, that's a statement of fact. It's not my opinion. It's not me saying, wow, the weather outside is really chilly. Well, maybe I'm you know from Florida and I think that 68 degrees is really hot. That's an expression of opinion. If I'm from Colorado, like I am, 68, not so bad. So I could say, wow, the weather's really hot outside for the end of March. So that's more there's more context there and there's more opinion but when you state 68 degrees that's either verifiably true or false and so when we're talking about this case um, I think it's so important what the judge actually said in your case that you actually get this opportunity to ask that question what were you thinking and prove your case that these are demonstrably factually false statements so what's the next step in uh, this particular case for Project Veritas? 
Well, it, it's the next step for us is we get to depose the New York Times. We get to have the New York Times for once, the people who go around hounding everyone else in America and demanding you answer their questions, they now have to sit down and answer our questions. And we're going to find out exactly what happened with this story and why it is the New York Times called this video deceptive when, by the way, they submitted over 700 pages worth of evidence to the court to try to prove that their opinion was in fact true, that our video was deceptive, and they failed. The court said they failed to meet their burden to show that our video was in fact deceptive. So now we get to sit them down and ask, how in the world did you come to that conclusion when you can see their faces, you can see the action, you can hear their voices? So do you expect that the New York Times is actually going to want to litigate this or do you think that there's possibly going to be a way that they're going to try to now settle this because they don't want to be confronted by legal counsel? I, I do not know what the New York Times is going to do, but to be completely frank, we don't really care because I will tell you one thing, we don't settle lawsuits. That's great. And I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to challenge this because in order for the precedent to change, in order for uh, people like the New York Times or whoever it is, if in fact they are making a factually false statement, they, the only way for them to be held accountable is to take them to court and require that, uh, that the court makes that finding and to say, to argue in front of a judge, the standard here needs to be correctly applied and not just sort of the reflex as well they're a publisher, there's the freedom of the press, and kind of kick this out. And we've seen that over especially the last four years. So this is a really remarkable case. And um, I really appreciate what you're doing at Project Veritas. And about the last minute we have here, um, for people who maybe aren't familiar with as much of the work that you're doing, uh, generally, what is Project Veritas and what's the main mission of uh, your project? Yeah, so Project Veritas is an undercover journalism organization. We go inside and investigate the claims that the New York Times is unwilling to investigate. And we capture it with the, with the words coming out of the mouths of the subjects and show you exactly what they say. We don't rely on unnamed sources and, an, and anonymous sources. We don't rely on hearsay. You get to hear the actual people that we are talking about say the thing. The New York Times doesn't have that. And, and frankly, that's the reason that they published this hit piece is because they were just jealous of what we uncovered that they refused to investigate. Because maybe you're better journalists than they are, and they have a narrative, like we've talked a lot about this show, uh, that the mainstream media doesn't want you to hear the truth. So we're going to be right back, though, with more, because we speak truth on this show. So stick around. We'll be right back with more of Just the Truth. And continuing the conversation with Project Veritas's chief legal officer, Jared Ede, uh, talking about Project Veritas and their role as undercover journalists to make sure that you get the raw, unfiltered truth that doesn't have the spin of the mainstream media. So we've been talking about the great lawsuit and the progress uh, that you've made. And Jared, as, as a fellow lawyer, as someone, of course, who I think is excited about uh, this type of progress in terms of litigation, um, if you were crafting a standard for for uh, the Supreme Court to consider um, in terms of actually allowing journalists and publishers to be held to the standard of factual truth or falsity, um, how should the New York Times versus Sullivan standard change? 
Oh, gosh, that is a really good question. And, and I think it's something that we have to think about. We have to think about the implication of New York Times. You know, Alan Dershowitz recently wrote an op-ed about this, saying that basically the, the effect of New York Times has been open season on public officials or, or public figures, rather. And, and I think there's some truth to that. You know, when you have this situation where the courts effectively protect the New York Times from ever having to answer the questions of how did their reporting come to be, the New York Times feels emboldened to do things like what they just did with our story. Uh, calling us, uh, you know, our video deceptive when in fact it shows exactly the act that we said it showed. Um, I, I think you're going to start to see more pushback here against the New York Times and various people under uh, the New York Times versus Sullivan, just from the mere fact that you're starting to see judges kind of open up to the idea that perhaps the malice standard can be more easily met. But I, I think at a minimum, what we should be talking about is the possibility of allowing people such as Project Veritas when they sue under New York Times versus Sullivan, the ability to have limited discovery. Again, ask that question to the reporter. What were you thinking? What was going on inside your head before the motion to dismiss comes? How in the world are you supposed to meet that subjective standard of New York Times versus Sullivan without having the ability to do that? Um, so I, I do think there's some room for improvement, certainly on New York Times versus Sullivan. They, it's it's gone from being a shield to being a sword. Yes, and I think that it's given uh, different publishers that have a message and a certain narrative that they want to uh, to put forth. It's given them almost a license to go out and and think. Well, we can just get this dismissed at the summary judgment phase or the motion to dismiss phase, and we're not going to actually be held accountable. We're not going to have to go through discovery. We're not going to have to go through this lengthy, protracted litigation and answer those questions because we will just have the journalistic defense of saying, well, this is just opinion and everything's opinion. But that really, um, in a world where where we have publication, we have at least quote unquote news outlets. How is it even possible and, and logical that everything is opinion? I mean, is that really the world that the, the New York Times thinks that we live in, that there's nothing uh, such as a factual statement, that everything they publish is opinion? I mean, that's really where uh, that's kind of precedent is going. And so for someone like Project Veritas, where you go and um, you have you know, the, the, the members of Project Veritas, you go out and are actually doing this kind of reporting. Why is this so important to you to have those types of legal protections that you can hold other outlets accountable if they publish factually false statements against you? Well, the reality is here. And, and, and this is actually particularly interesting when you deal with the New York Times, for example. Again, you know, I guess it shouldn't be surprising that they characterize everything as opinion because they're not that familiar with the facts to begin with. But <laughs> when they do actually get challenged on their, their reporting, they frequently go back to the whole idea of, well, if it's not an opinion, then, you know, we shouldn't be held liable because of, again, the malice standard being what it is. It's the standard of I knew it was false or I should have known it was uh, should have known it was false at the time, that reckless disregard element that they turn around and they constantly say, well, gosh, we, we had no clue what we wrote was false because we didn't do our jobs. Mm -hmm. The thing about Project Veritas is, you know, James O'Keefe, he constantly talks about this idea of this, there, there being 12 jurors on your shoulder that you walk around making sure that everything you do is unassailable. And we prove that when we go to court. We prove our videos are true. The New York Times, when they go to court, they prove their reporting is false. Mm -hmm. And they say, but let us have a free pass. 
This lawsuit is so important because it is for every person the New York Times has ever printed a falsehood about. It is holding them to account for every single one of these people. This isn't about Project Veritas. This isn't about me. This isn't about James O'Keefe. This is about the truth and ensuring that the newspaper of record holds themselves to the same standard they try to hold everyone else to. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is a great point. And I want to read um, just this quick paragraph from the judge's order. It says that Project Veritas argues uh, that not only does the complaint allege that the defendants had knowledge of the falsity of their defamatory statements at the time of publication, but it pleads detailed facts showing the presence of literally every hallmark of actual malice recognized by the law, including setting out uh, with a preconceived narrative, being motivated by ill will and bias, failing to contact obvious sources of information, relying on biased and non-credible sources, violating journalistic standards, and refusing to retract. Project Veritas alleges that it has far exceeded that standard by pleading overwhelming circumstantial evidence of actual malice, including that. And I mean, I was a journalism major. That's my, my undergrad degree is in journalism. The hallmark first thing that we learned as journalists is verify, verify, verify. And so the judge is, is, is basically telling you, you know, yes, the New York Times is that bad of a newspaper that they refuse to, to do anything according to a journalistic standard. And so um, as we follow this case, Jared, uh, where can people reach you at Project Veritas? So we ask people to join our fight. You know, again, this isn't about Project Veritas. This isn't about me. This is about holding the New York Times accountable. Go to exposenyt.com, reach out to us at veritastips at protonmail.com. You can see it right there on the screen. Email us at legal at projectveritas.com if you have information that you would like us to know. We welcome all the support uh, possible. Again, you know, this is, this is for everybody who has ever been lied about in the New York Times. We're finally holding them accountable. They're finally going to be in the hot seat and have to answer our questions. Well, we really appreciate you doing this. And as we get more updates, and we'll have to have you back on, Jared, thanks so much for joining me tonight on Just the Truth. And now Thank you for to Just the Word. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. That's it for this episode of Just the Truth. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about the Thomas More Society and the incredible work that we do there at thomasmoresociety.org. And I will be back tomorrow and every Monday through Friday here on Just the Truth.